Welcome to another installment of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your sermon in Jesus Christ. This is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, real quick, have you ever heard of something called the Pelagian heresy? Pelagian heresy was a heresy taught by a monk by the name of Pelagius around the time of Augustine, you know, the great theologian uh, Augustine. And the Pelagian heresy denied that human beings are born with a sinful nature and taught that Christians can attain sinless perfectionism in this lifetime. And the Pelagian heresy is a heresy based upon 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And we'll note that the Christian church, ever since the time that Pelagius reared his ugly head and brought this false theology into the Christian church, that the church has always recognized that Pelagius's teachings were not merely an error, but they were heresy that put somebody outside of the Christian faith. All of that being said, we're going to note that what we're going to do today is we're going to head over to Risen Nation Church, and we're going to listen to William Hinn. This is the guy who partners up with Todd White, and you're going to hear him saying that he and Todd White both affirm this theology that he's teaching. But what he's teaching is, in fact, the Pelagian heresy. And we're going to give you some resources uh, once we whirl up the desktop, and we'll put the links down below to two resources that will help you if you want to do some, some further research on this, but we'll also do the biblical work along the way. And so with that, let's whirl up the desktop, and uh, and uh, we'll, I want to show you guys this. Okay, so yeah, this is my new desktop. I took this photo the other day. Uh, so my son and I, we, we traveled up to Inkster, North Dakota. This was shot in Johnstown, which is not too far from Inkster. Uh, this was on October 11th. Big Aurora Borealis here in North Dakota. And uh, that was quite an epic night. And uh, that was a photograph I took. Uh, I think it was like a five or six second long exposure. Still got some star streaks because I was shooting that at like the 70 mil. But anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. But uh, here's... Uh, <laughs> I've already distracted myself. Oh, well. Okay, so here is William Hinn. Note that uh, he and Todd White together are pastoring Risen Nation Church. And if you know anybody that attends this church or thinks that Todd White and William Hinn are like the bee's knees and that they're teaching, they're bringing the fire, man. The, the only fire they're bringing are the fires of hell. And I, and I am not overstating that. This is heresy that he's teaching. And what I'm going to do is that this is a sermon called God's Rest. It's from October 3rd. And in here, he's going to twist up the Bible really bad, but he's talked about, uh, you know, the seventh day of creation, God resting on the seventh day and things of this nature. But we're going to pay close attention to the technique that he's using. And I'll say this up front, the Bible twisting techniques that he engages in, these are really high level twisting techniques. Uh, I, it's really rare th that I see somebody this skilled at twisting God's word. And so the work that we're going to have to do to untwist this is going to be a lot. And don't worry, we're going to spend a lot of time in the word that shows that we Christians, we still have a sinful nature and that we daily have to contend with our own sin. And we'll, we'll quote Jesus on this, we'll quote Paul, and we will quote um, the, uh, the Apostle John. But all of that being said, I have to reiterate, 
What you're going to hear is not merely an error. This is heresy. This is the Pelagian heresy. In fact, I'll show you this right now. Uh, in, the, in the links down below, uh, the link number one is to a survey of historical heresies, Pelagianism. This is a lecture uh, delivered by Phil Johnson that we covered on our podcast years ago. A survey of historical heresies, Pelagianism by Phil Johnson. Worth the listen. Absolutely worth the listen. Hang on a second. I hit my, I hit my Squarespace thing. Here you go. His, uh, yeah, there we go. So, uh, so survey of historical heresies, Pelagianism, and the second is a link to uh, one of the uh, writings of the Church Fathers, a, a volume on the writings of the Church Fathers by Philip Schaff, and the introduction is the thing that we're interested in. So this is Saint Augustine, his anti-Pelagian writings, and uh, the introduction is fantastic by B. B. Warfield, uh, the you know the late Reformed theologian, you know from the, the from the eighteen hundreds. But he wrote the introduction to this installment of Philip Schaff's uh, volumes on the writings of the Church Fathers. This is a great, succinct, and super great uh, explanation as to what Pelagianism is. But I would also recommend the book itself by Augustine. Read how the Church Fathers wrote against Pelagius and the text that they marshaled. Again, this is not merely an error. This is not merely an error. This is heresy. This puts you outside of the Christian faith. So those are your resources. The links are down below. So here we are. Uh, this is William Hinn. He's preaching on God's rest. And all I got to say is buckle up because what he's going to do next is he's going to invoke uh, the storm from Mark 4. He's going to invoke G uh, Peter walking on the water in Matthew uh, 14, and he's going to engage in a Bible-twisting technique known as eisegesis. That's where you read things into the biblical text, but the, uh, the, the tool that he uses for eisegeting these passages is he's going to give us spurious and like completely made up definitions of Greek words that when you fact check them, they, don't, they, 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 they just don't hold up. And the thing is, my undergraduate degree is in biblical languages, and I teach Greek. So that being the case, we're gonna we're we're gonna note the real slick ways that he's twisting the scriptures here, and uh, and I gotta tell you, if you hear anybody who's doing this preaching like this, run, especially William Hinn or uh, Todd White, because Todd White, you know, he, you know, Todd White teaches this as well. But uh, let's let's jump into the sermon. I, I've added some context here. We're starting at the 27 minute 39, uh, 27 minutes and 39 second mark. If you want to go and listen to the rest of the sermon, you are welcome to do that. But uh, let's see where William Hinn goes. I love it because Jesus, I think, gives us a picture of this. Give, Jesus is giving us a picture of God's rest, the Sabbath rest. In Mark chapter four, when he's asleep, remember he's in the stern of the boat. All the waves are beating on the ship and the disciples are scared and afraid, even though the king of glory is with them and they don't realize it. Where does it say that, that out of our innermost being, that he's gonna dwell in our innermost being, that rivers of living water will come out of our innermost being. So Jesus is in the innermost part of this ship representing humanity. All right, now let me explain what he's doing here. Aside for not for you know from the fact that he's not reading the text and the details don't match what he's saying, 
Okay. He's, his claim is, is that Jesus being in the innermost part of this fishing vessel on the Sea of Galilee in Mark 4 is representative of how Jesus is in the very inner sanctum or heart of humanity. Baloney. That's just false. And even the text doesn't agree with him on these details. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, let's read the account. Mark chapter 4 says this, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, they, took, uh, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. So a little bit of a note here. Jesus isn't in the inner part of this boat. If you're familiar with Galilean fishing vessels of this time, they weren't multi-decked things. There wasn't a, there wasn't an inside inner sanctum or anything like, like that. They didn't have a poop deck. Uh, you know, instead it was just a like, well, a really long single leveled boat, right? So Jesus is in the stern, not in the inner part of it. He's in the stern asleep on the cushion. This is like the pilot's uh, couch, you know, where the pilot sits. And so they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Why are you so afraid? Have And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Faith in whom? In him, right? So they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so you'll note that this passage is one of those ones. It's early in the gospel of Mark and the disciples are still sorting this out. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy, right? And, you know, coming to grips with the idea that Jesus is none other than the God of the Jews in human flesh, that's still a little beyond them at this point. It's still a little bit beyond them. And so Jesus, when he rebukes the wind and the sea and the sea and the wind obey him like they're his pets, this speaks to the fact that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh right? Who is this? And that's the punchline. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? But where we have already, can, we can already document, and this is not straining out a gnat. This is very important details. We can already see that what William Hinn is saying this text says and what it means, it doesn't jive. Right? He's claiming that somehow Jesus being in the inner part of this boat, that somehow that's representative of Jesus being in the heart of humanity or something, that's just absolute scubalon. It's, it's nonsense. But Jesus wasn't even in the heart of the boat. He was in the stern. He's in the back of the boat. All right? So he, he's not correctly quoting this at all. And it matters. It absolutely matters. Let me back this up. Listen again. Dwell in our innermost being that rivers of living water will come out of our innermost being. So Jesus is in the innermost part of this ship representing humanity. No, he's in the stern. And everything in the world is coming against the ship, but God is within you in the innermost part at rest. <laughs> God is within you in the innermost part at rest. So he's allegorizing this, this, this account, and he's engaging in eisegesis, and what he said about Jesus being in the innermost part of the ship, the text itself doesn't even agree with. He was in the stern. He's in the back of the boat, all right? So we've already got a problem here, and that is, is that William Hinn isn't rightly handling these texts, but it gets worse. We continue. 
And they couldn't tap into that frequency. They had to wake him up. They couldn't tap into a frequency? What? Okay, so note here, he's, scold he's basically finding fault with the disciples for failing to tap into the frequency that Jesus was in the inner sanctum of the boat, and that represents how God dwells at the heart of humanity. Nothing in this text says that or even implies it. You're making it up. You're engaging in eisegesis. You're reading something into the passage that isn't there. I find it interesting that the waves and the lightning and everything that they probably heard didn't wake him up, but the voice of his disciples woke him up. And they're afraid and they're fearful and he rebukes them and the storm. Okay, now watch what he does. And they're amazed. I mean, after everything that they had seen, they're still like, okay, maybe he is who he says he is. I know he raised the dead, but... The text says, they ask the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He's not accurately summarizing this passage. I, I know he's continually healed me. I know that he's continually blessed. I know, that he's, I know there's never been a day where I don't have food, but I'm still complaining about money. I, I said Jesus still. And God is at rest in the innermost being. And we're still like, God? God is at rest in the innermost being. What are you talking about? Has nothing to do with this passage. And he wakes up and he rebukes it. And that word rebuke in, in Greek in Mark chapter four says he raises the standard of the storm. <laughs> Where'd you study Greek, dude? Because there's no biblical, there's no Greek lexicon that says this. All right, so let's take a look at what he does here because it's really slick. And I'll, let me explain the, the technique first, and then we'll take a look at what the word rebuke means in Greek. And so here's the technique. He has zoomed in on this word, rebuked. Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea. But the thing is, is that what Jesus legitimately said historically, peace be still, isn't going to fit his theology. So he has to find a way to make Jesus say something different than peace be still. And so what he's going to do, and he's already done this, he's given us a completely fabricated, phony baloney, Clinton $3 bill counterfeit definition of the, of the Greek verb epi, uh, epitemao. Epitemao. Sorry, it's tamao. Epitemao. So let me show you what the Greek word means. Epitemao. Oh, wait. I, I want to. I don't want Mounce's version. Hang on a second here. I actually want BDAG. So this over here is. Uh, this is the, the Brown Driver uh, Briggs uh, Greek lexicon. All right. And this gives us the definition of epitemao. And listen to what it says, to express strong disapproval of someone or to rebuke or to reprove or to censure, also to speak seriously or warn in order to prevent an action or to bring it to an end. All right. That's your primary definition of this word. Now, there is a secondary definition to punish, but it doesn't fit the context of what's going on here. And you'll note that in Mark's gospel, it simply says that Jesus rebuked the wind, but we have the words by which Jesus rebuked the wind. And the words are, peace be still. 
he rebuked the wind by saying to the wind, peace, be still. All right, to speak seriously or to warn in order to prevent an action or to bring one to an end. By Jesus saying to the storm, peace be still, that is the content that he used to rebuke the wind and the waves. He rebuked them by saying to them, be still. And the purpose then was to bring their action of storming to an end. Now, that's the definition of epitomao. William Hinn here has invented a definition. And what he's doing is this made up artificial counterfeit definition of the Greek verb epitomao now will become the content of Jesus's rebuke rather than what Jesus really said. So listen to this and it's really slick. I mean, really slick. In Greek in Mark chapter four, it says he raises the standard of the storm. He calls it to a higher place, actually. It says he called it down and honored it all at the same time, which means like anyone have kids in here? Anyone say this statement ever? Come on, you know better than that. I mean, as parents, we hope that they know better than that. Come on, you, you were raised better than this. That's what, re- when you rebuke somebody, what you're saying is, is you're better than that. So he stands up and he looks at the storm and says, you're better than that. The st- <laughs> Did you catch it? So he came up with a completely counterfeit definition of epitomao. Epitomao means to, to, to basically elevate the storm and say to it, you're better than that. And so there's no, there's no Greek lexicon that says that's the definition of epitomao. No, 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 no Greek lexicon says that. Mm-mm. He just made up the definition. And now with this new definition, he ignores the words that Jesus actually spoke. And now we have Jesus saying to the storm, you're better than that. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say to the storm, you're better than that. He said, peace, be still. This is slick. This is really slick. I I guess I shouldn't be that impressed. I mean, after all, he's a hen, right? Backing up, listen again to how he does it. They know better than that same time, which means like anyone have kids in here? I want you to hear this, what he does again in context. And we're still like, God? And he wakes up and he rebukes it. And that word rebuke in in Greek in Mark chapter four says he raises the standard of the storm. No, it doesn't. You made that up. He calls it to a higher place, actually. It's no, he didn't. He said, peace be still. He called it down and honored it all at the same time, which means like anyone have kids in here? Anyone say this statement ever? Come on, you know better than that. I mean, as parents, we hope that they know better than that. Come on, you, you were raised better than this. That's what, re- when you rebuke somebody, what you're saying is, is you're better than that. So he stands up and he looks at the storm and says, you're better than that. Now he said, peace be still, you're lying. The storm obeys him because it heard a frequency that wasn't attached to the restlessness that... No, it didn't hear a frequency. The storm heard the voice of its creator. The same God who said, let there be light and there was light, said to the storm, peace be still. You see how dangerous this is? This is really sick and slick. Creation is growing through. Told the disciples, you're better than this. No, he didn't say that to the disciples either. Uh, What did he say to the disciples? 
Um, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? How come what you said Jesus said isn't what Jesus said? Hmm? And it's not what Jesus meant either. Listen again. Obeys him. Because it hurt a frequency that wasn't attached to the restlessness that creation is growing through. Told the disciples, you're better than this. Who lied to you? You're better than this who lied to you? No, Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? If, if he's preaching the truth, why is it that when I open up the Bible, it says different words than what he's saying? Not even close words. Remember when Peter is walking on water? I mean, Peter, before mm -hmm. being born again. Now, this is where he's going to make the transition directly into the Pelagian heresy. And so now he's invoking Peter from Matthew 14. Let's take a look at the text ahead of time. Matthew 14. Let's see. I'm going to back this up just a little bit. So this is the day that Jesus uh, performs the feeding of the 5,000, that particular miracle of feeding 5,000 men, Jewish men in the wilderness, along with the women and children, quite a multitude in the middle of the wilderness, a food miracle. Hmm. Kind of hints at the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a little Exodus theme going on here. So Jesus immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was going a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, or actually, ego me, I am. Yeah, he invokes the divine name from Exodus 3. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Ah, so Peter here isn't acting in faith, he's acting in doubt. I, is, are you sure that's you, Jesus? If it's you, tell me to come to you. So Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Great, great prayer, by the way. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. So you'll know these two work together. You know, two miracles on the Sea of Galilee, both involving storms. And in the, in the one, they're saying, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then in the second account, by the end, they're, they're now worshiping Jesus and saying, truly, you are the son of God. And Jesus receives their worship because he's God in human flesh. You get the point. That's kind of what's going on here. But watch where William Hinn goes, because this is, again, going to rely on him giving us a counterfeit and spurious definition of a Greek word. In this particular case, it's going to be the word that's used for doubt. It's translated as doubt. Uh, distazo is the, uh, the Greek verb here. And then from there, he's going to jump into the Pelagian heresy full on. Listen to this. Walking on water because he's just looking at the right thing. No, because he had a word from Jesus. Jesus said, come. Falls in, says, why do you doubt? Which means to be twain in Greek. Kind of. 
All right. He says it means to be twain in Greek. Now, let me show you what the, the word here. The word is distazo. And let me get BDAG up again. Hang on a second here. There we go. And let's make this a little bit bigger. Now, the, so D2 are, you know, like divisions, die, you got die. And stazo from uh, stasis uh, means to stand. So you're, 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 you're standing between two things. The picture here of the, of the word in its kind of piece form is uh, the, the word picture, if you would, like if you're, if you're going down a path and you come to a, div a division in the road, you, gotta, you can go either to the path to the right or a path to the left. The, the, the idea here is you're standing at a division. You're standing at a place where you have to make a decision one way or another. And if you're undecided and you're having doubts, the doubt is, is regarding which direction you should go. And that's the picture then of this verb in this context. So note then how it how it's defined then to be uncertain, to have second thoughts about a matter, to have doubts concerning something, doubt or to waver. The subject is a subgroup of the apostles for another interpretation. You get the idea. To be uncertain about taking a particular course of action, to hesitate in doubt. That's what the word distazo means. Now watch what he does here. Okay, so he's given us a kind of, you know, uh, you know, a, a kind of definition that isn't really the definition of distazo, and now he's going to insert into this text what it, apparently Peter was having doubts about. But what he inserts using his false definition of this Greek word, it's not in this text, nor is it implied. He's inserting it. This is eisegesis. To rightly handle a biblical text, you have to engage in exegesis. Exegesis means to read out. Eisegesis means to read things in. You don't want to read things in. You want to exegete. You want to read things out of the biblical text. So let's back it up just a little bit. Watch where he goes. Walking on water because he's just looking at the right thing. Falls in, says, why do you doubt? Which means to be twain in Greek. Why are you double-minded? Who told you that you were a sinner and a son? Who told you were, you were a sinner and a son? That's not in this text. And now, as they say, we're off to the races. Now, what, what's going to come flooding, using his eisegesis out of William Hinn's mouth, is the Pelagian heresy, one of the tenets of it, Christian sinlessness. Bipolar Christianity. I'm waking up, I, I hear this all the time, like somehow people are sinning from the time they wake up to brush their teeth. Where did you get that from? Oh, I don't know, the Bible. Now, here's where we're gonna do some biblical work. Here's what the Bible teaches. Our governing text is gonna be the clearest. And here, here it is, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, Jesus falls outside of this passage because we have a clear text from the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are and yet is without sin. And this is good news for us, right? And But here, regarding everybody who's a descendant of Adam and Eve, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Jesus says it this way to the rich young ruler. No one is good except for God alone. No one, right? 
So then we have 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And this is the reason why the ancient church in the time of Augustine considered the doctrines of Pelagius to be heresy rather than a mere error. And here's why. 1 John, written to Christians. If we say, who's the we? John is including himself, right? Isn't that how we works, right? If we say, we, you and me, you, we Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, to be a liar and his word is not in us. What William Hinn and Todd White preach and teach, Christian sinlessness, is, falls under this condemnation from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if you get the diagnosis wrong, you'll never get the, the solution correct. And over and again, false heretics come along and teach Christian perfectionism. It's a lie. Scripture doesn't teach it. In fact, Scripture says, if you say you have no sin, you are, you are self-deceived and the truth is not in you and you make God out to be a liar. Full stop. We Christians still have a sinful nature. Christ taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Note, we pray for daily bread how often? Every day, right? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Christ taught us daily to pray to God the Father to forgive us of our trespasses. Why would I do that unless I've trespassed against God's law? Right? Now, in the, in the, in the ancient church, you can always tell a Pelagian because uh, those who, who prayed the Lord's Prayer, they would say to somebody who believed in the Pelagian heresy, well, Christ taught us daily to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Why would he teach us to do that if we are not sinning? Well, the Pelagian would say, well, we still pray that prayer, but not because we need any sin to be forgiven in our lives, but because we do that in order to stay humble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Christ says, pray, forgive us our trespasses daily. And then you consider Galatians 5, which, by the way, is a cross-reference to uh, Romans chapter 7. And watch what Paul says, writing to believers. It is for freedom you are called, brothers, you are called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for what? The flesh, right? 
but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Right? So Paul says, you were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the what? The flesh. So Paul says then, I say, walk by the Spirit, that means to walk by faith, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. You mean we Christians still have a sinful flesh? Yeah. Galatians 5 explicitly says that. And the desires of the Spirit, they're against what? The flesh. He's describing the state of what it's like to be a Christian, right? These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. For, for now, the works of the flesh, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and the desire and its desires. Mm -hmm. So note then that Paul has to warn Christians to walk according to the spirit and not according to their flesh, which we all have, right? Otherwise, this text doesn't make any sense. Colossians 2 also is very clear. Listen to what Paul says in, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, if we didn't have things that were earthly in us, well, then why would Paul be telling us to put those things to death? Hmm? And if you're not sure what that means, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Why would Paul have to write to Christians to put this all away if we don't sin? Huh? Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've, been, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. So note... Paul is admonishing Christians. He doesn't sit there and say, now you don't have any sin, brother. You don't, you know. <laughs> he says, you still have your sinful flesh and its passions are warring against the spirit. Put that all off. Put it on. How often? Daily? Hour? Minute by minute if necessary? Kind of get the idea right here. If, if we didn't have a sinful nature to deal with and sinful flesh, then why is Paul telling us to do these things? It doesn't make any sense. Ephesians um, uh, chapter 4 says, Now I say, say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is due to, due, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you've heard about him, we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to what? Put off your old self. Why would I have to put something off that I didn't have? Hmm? 
which is, belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We Christians still have an old self. And we're not going to be free from that guy until you die or in Jesus returns and we're resurrected from the dead. So, uh, yeah, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem here. All of these passages scream that, uh, well, William Hinn is not telling us the truth because all these passages are saying the exact opposite of what he says. And then the coup de grace, Romans 7, a description of the normal Christian life. The Apostle Paul writes the important bits in the present tense. This is a description of what it's like to be a Christian. It feels like you're at war with yourself. So Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So what shall we say? That the law is sin? No. No, the law is good, by the way. By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and then I died. So the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, that's the sin within me, seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment's holy. And it's righteous and good. So did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, written in present tense, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He doesn't say, I knew that I know that nothing good dwelt in me. He says dwells, present tense. For I have the desire to do what's right, not the ability to carry it out. So I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who do it. It's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the life of a Christian, uh, the, the way the reformers described it, it's simul justus et peccator simultaneously justified, declared righteous before God and still sinner at the same time because we still have a sinful flesh. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knows that. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I myself serve the law of God with my mind, uh, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You get the idea, right? So Christians still have a sinful flesh. That's exactly kind of the point here. That's why we have to pray daily. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you'll note that we're embracing all of this using what's called exegesis, reading the texts, exegeting out what they say and what God meant for us to understand in these passages. And again, I come back. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. First John chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Clear passages, all exegeted, and already we're on shaky ground here because how did we get into the discussion of what, you know, this kind of bipolar Christianity that he's talking about where he denies that Christians still sin? It was based upon a completely fabricated definition of the Greek word verb distazo. Got a problem here. Got a problem. Let's take a look. Here we go. I'm waking up. I, I hear this all the time. Like somehow people are sinning from the time they wake up to brush their teeth. Where did you get that from? Well, the, all the biblical texts I just read. Who lied to you and made you double-minded in all of your ways, which... You this isn't double-minded. If it were double-minded, then the Apostle John's double-minded, right? If you think this is what it means to, to distazo, which is completely spurious, by the way, then John is, is double-minded. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is double-minded when he teaches us to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses, right? So... Note here, he's not exegeting. He gave us a spurious definition of distazo, misappropriated that spurious definition. There's no proper way to appropriate a spurious definition, by the way. And now he's not, he's not exegeting a text. He's theologizing in thin air. Who lied to you and made you double-minded in all of your ways, which you wonder why you're unstable? No, no, no. You are nothing other. If you are born again, baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, you are nothing other than as he is. Then why do, did Jesus tell us to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses? Hmm? Why does Paul say, oh, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Hmm? Why did John say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? Hmm? Care to explain any of that? Because you're not exegeting. Nothing else. Everything else is a lie. Everything else. No, everything he's saying here is a lie. It's not what God's word says at all. Else is a lie. And if you believe the lie, you're going to live like the lie. If you believe. Really, if I, so if I believe that I still have a sinful nature and that I sin, then that, I'm going I'm to live the lie. Again, the text says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. You're the one lying. Other than as he is. 
Nothing else. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is a lie. And if you believe the lie, you're going to live like the lie. If and yet he's lying. If you believe you're a sinner, you're going to live in sin, period. Baloney. <laughs> this is nonsense. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're lying, sir. We're so focused on sin in the church and we're wondering why we're still sinning when we should be so far beyond sin, so set free from sin, so in a life of righteousness and purity that I don't have to try to be pure. Really? So if I were to have, sit down, just have a conversation with your wife, she would say, my husband never sins. Really? Is that what she would say? You're lying, sir. Scripture says so. And you're deceiving yourself and you're making God to be a liar. Scripture says so. Because I don't, I don't go to the grocery store. I say it all the time. And it's like, I needed to hit more. We don't go to the grocery store and say, babe, hold me back. Because that can't. Which text is he exegeting? He's not. He bars calling my name and I'm feeling thief-like today. <laughs> I don't say that at Trader Joe's. I never have said that. I don't walk around covering my eyes when I see a woman because I don't want to commit adultery. Don't look at me. I am too in love with this fall colored sweater. <laughs> really? So you love your wife sinlessly and because of your sinless love for your wife, you never ever struggle with any temptations as it relates to other women, visually or physically or any other way. You're a liar. Scripture says you're a liar. We matched today, if you didn't notice. Yeah. I won't tell you what Tanner just said to me. I'm too in love to even think about it. Baloney. You're lying. Scripture says you're lying. You're self-deceived here, dude. And here's the other thing. Let me kind of point this out. If you fall for this, then you create a false Christian caste system. And it's not even Christian. It's a caste system within the visible church. Here's how it works. At the top of the heap are the people who claim that they glow in the dark. Todd White, William Hinn. Oh, they, they love the Lord so much that they never sin. Yet the scriptures say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But they say, oh, yeah, I I'm one of the burning ones. I burn with love for Jesus, and I never have a problem like this. Liar. And then what happens is, is that, so at the top, you have the glow in the darks, right? Now, below them uh, is the vast majority of people within the visible church, and the vast majority then are the people who are sitting there going, man, I got to figure out how do I can get to that place. What do I need to do to get to glow in the dark status, right? How are they doing? And so they strive and they strive, but if they're honest, well, they're not succeeding, but they'll keep at it. They'll keep at it. I'm going to tr keep trying. So the glow in the darks are leading the masses down here who are striving to get to the be glow in the dark, right? And so if they're honest, they're not pulling it off and they're struggling and they're frustrated. But then you got really a decision to make at this point. And here's your decision. Do I tell the truth or do I lie? And if you lie like they are, you can join them at the top, at the glow in the darks. Okay. So you sit there and go, oh, 
I've figured it out. I too glow in the dark and I don't sin anymore. And then you get to go up and you get to explain to everybody how you did it. And everyone goes, oh, that's so great. I wish I could figure out how to do that, right? But now back to the other group, okay? So you got all these people trying to figure it out. If you're honest, you're frustrated. And eventually you get to the point where you sit there and go, well, God doesn't love me. I'm probably not even a Christian. And then you become a backslider and you go down to the bottom group, right? The backsliders might still show up at church from time to time, but they're frustrated and they can't pull it off. And so what nobody nobody understands is that when you buy this lie, you create a complete facade, the facade of self-righteousness, of uh, all this kind of stuff. But again, scripture says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make God out to be a liar. All the glow-in-the-darkers, all, all those glow-in-the-dark ones, they are liars. It's a scam. And this creates despair. It creates self-righteousness. It creates hypocrisy. And I promise you, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But if we could just follow Mr. William Hinn around with a hidden camera for a couple of days, he would never again be able to say that he doesn't sin. <laughs> and he wouldn't dare do it. And his wife knows he does. So this guy is flat out scamming everybody. Scripture says he's a liar. And if you buy this lie, you're going to shipwreck your faith. This is why this is a heresy, not an error. See, love and grace. We don't preach grace because we're afraid people are going to make it extreme. Grace is crazy extreme. There's no such thing as extreme grace. There's just demonic doctrine called take advantage of the forgiveness of God and do whatever the heck I want. That is not grace. Yeah, scripture warns against that. That's called licentiousness. That, that's not the normal Christian life that Paul's describing in Romans 6. That's something demonic. We'll give it another name. But grace is scandalous. It's crazy. It's it, grace is God's unmerited favor, right? I didn't deserve this, but I still got it. And it so awakens something in my heart. That word means divine influence upon the heart. And what word means divine influence upon the heart? Charis? Grace? Charis, by the way, is the Greek word for grace. Listen again. This, again so note that not only... Does scripture say he's a liar? We're catching him in lies along the way. Listen. It's crazy. It's, I didn't deserve this, but I still got it. And it mm -hmm. so awakens something in my heart. That word means divine influence upon the heart. And I'm so divinely influenced that I reflect. Divine influence upon the heart. Is that what grace means? Is that what charis means? All right. So let's see here. If I go to Romans 1, right? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, which he promised. Let's see here. To all those in Rome who are loved, grace to you. Here we go. Grace to you and peace. Charis. That, that's our Greek verb, charis. All right? D does this mean divine influence upon the heart? Well, let's take a look. Charis. All right. Let's see here. 
Um, a, a winning quality of attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction, gracious attractiveness, charm, winsomeness of human form and appearance. Okay, uh, ben, uh, a beneficent disposition towards someone, favor, grace, gracious, care, help, goodwill, in the reciprocity-oriented world dominated by Hellenistic influence. Okay, uh, that which one grants to another, actions of which who volunteers to do something. Okay, um, that which one experiences from another. Okay, uh, in Christian epistol epistolary uh, literary form, the time of Paul Carus is found with the sense of divine favor in mixed formulas at the beginning and end of letters. Divine favor. Mm -hmm. What did he say it was again? Hang on a second here. Let's serve this, but I still got it. And it so yeah. awakens something in my heart. That word means divine influence upon the heart. Divine influence upon the heart. That's not what Karis means. You're lying again. You're making stuff up. But then again, you know, we shouldn't be surprised because your theology clearly, again, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. So scripture is clear. You're making God to be a liar and well, voila, we keep catching you lying about what the Greek means. And I'm so divinely influenced that I reflect the life. Come on. That's grace. This is total baloney. That's not grace at all. You just made that up. Grace is divine influence upon the heart and the reflection of that life. Says no Greek lexicon anywhere. It's called love, the power. Love is the law. The law is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the purpose of the law is to shut you up and to show you don't do it. Of love that conquers death. If I really love Jesus, I'm not trying not to sin. I can't, I just can't think about it. Uh-huh, right. You never think about sinning. You're a liar. The scripture says so. If you're fighting the temptation of pornography, you are bound to pornography. And you can be free, completely free from that. And it's called God being in the room. Yeah, I would point you to Romans 6. Uh, because of our baptism, we've been buried with Christ in his death and resurrection. We're no longer slaves to sin. Because if God was in the room, well, if, I mean, let's, let's just bring it down to our level. If your mom was in the room. Again, which biblical text is he exegeting here? He isn't. He's not, he's not exegeting a single text. And, this, and this, he jumped off into this little this diatribe of his based upon a spurious definition of the Greek verb distazo. He probably wouldn't open the computer. So we don't have necessarily a sin problem. We have a presence problem. No, scripture says we still have a sinful flesh. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Because if God was really in the room, you wouldn't open the computer. So it just proves, do you love him? Because if you don't, you're not going to live like him. Right. The purpose of the law is to show you you don't love God perfectly. That's why you need Christ, the crucified Savior. 
again, which, which text is he exegeting? He's not. He's not exegeting a single text. He's lying. God wants to set you free from you. He wants to set you free. Like in Christianity, we're on defense fighting stuff all the time. The devil has been defeated for 2,000 years. I don't know how many times I have to say this, and we're still punching the devil every day, stomping on, singing the songs. He's under my feet. Are you... I'm so tired of hearing about the devil in church, like an ex-girlfriend on your wedding day. You say the wrong name. My wife just, I can feel it. I can feel her staring at me. Sin in this house better be a non-issue. If you are honest and you recognize what scripture says is true, that you still have a sinful flesh and you sin, don't show up there. Sinners need not be there. Only the glow in the darks are allowed at William Hens and uh, Todd White's uh, was Risen Nation. Yeah, this is the Risen Nation of, of Mordor Church. Because in this house, God found some sons that have been purified in fire. Oh, yeah. See, Hen and Todd White, they've been purified in fire. They, they, don't, ha they don't have any sin. That way you're on. It, don't you think it's a sin to twist God's word? Don't you think it's a sin to make up definitions of Greek words that are not true? That's called lying. We've caught you in so many lies. We've definitively proven you're still a sinner. You're lying through your teeth, dude. On fire, you're on fire. And fire devours everything and everything that goes into fire becomes the image of the fire. Everything. Again, not a biblical text that he's exegeting. This is just bizarre. Everything. So we're asked, purify us, God. Change my, I don't even want to, I, I believe we can be free from the temptation of it. Yet Jesus teaches us to pray daily, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. How do you reconcile what you just said with what Jesus taught us to pray every day? If you've read the Bible in your life, it's in there, I promise. Romans 6, people read Romans 7. Watch what he says to do with Romans 7. What I will to do, I can't do, but it starts out the chapter by saying, those that are under the law. You're not exegeting the text. We just worked our way through it. How many of you know the Bible wasn't written in chapters? <laughs> of course not, of course. But we read the relevant section in context. You're not exegeting it, sir. But they would write letters. So he tells you, you're free from sin, and here's what it's like being under the law, what you will to do, you want it, you can't do. And then Romans 8, then he brings the conclusion, but, but therefore now, everyone say now, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul also, writing in present tense, describes his Christian life. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. The case is closed. I love the pastor. The case is closed, and what... You, you, do you like the passion? That's not even a translation. Romans 7 is trying to tell you what it's like under the law with the accusing voice. No, Paul is describing what it's like to be a Christian. The case is closed in Romans 8. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation. 
that's because of what Christ did on the cross. Thank he has you. silenced the voice. So you don't have to live according to Romans 7. You don't have to live according to Romans 7. Well, good luck. Because 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the more we believe this, the more we're going to be like him. But we're double-minded as Christians because we can't figure out who we are. Now, I would point something out here. And I, you know, I've, you know, I'm not going to belabor the point. This guy is a flat-out heretic. This is part of the Pelagian heresy. Again, the resources to Phil Johnson's lecture on the Pelagian heresy, as well as uh, Benjamin Warfield's introduction to volume five of Augustine against Pelagius, and the whole volume itself, are uh, the links are down below. But I, I would like to point something out here, and that is, is that if we go to Exodus chapter 20, and um, just for the sake, uh, let's put a little Hebrew in here, shall we? Uh, so listen to the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Listen to this commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So this commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7, forbids people from lying in God's name. And that's what William Hinn is doing in the sermon. He is lying through his teeth. And then you get this one, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And in this particular case, by denying what scripture says, he's bearing false witness, not against his neighbor, but against God and the word. This man is, we've caught him in so many lies, it's not even funny. Now, don't you think that if we were listening to a fellow preaching a sermon about how he never sins, that we wouldn't catch him sinning in the process? The fact that we caught him blaspheming God's name and lying and contradicting the scriptures is proof that he's not telling you the truth about not sinning anymore. The guy has been sinning the whole time he's been talking, and all these made-up definitions of these Greek words, again, he's a counterfeit. If you buy into this, you buy into this at the sake of your soul. And again, he comes under the judgment then of 1 John chapter 1, 8 9 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ taught us to pray this daily, to confess our sins and ask God to forgive us daily. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So who are you going to believe? The apostle John, eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, author of scripture, or are you going to believe William Hinn? I'm going to go with the Apostle John. So should you. So hopefully you found this helpful. If so, all the information on how you can share the video is down below in the description, along with links to the resources that we're making available to help you on the Pelagian heresy. And until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sin. Amen. Amen.